This is hell. Thank you for tuning in to This is Hell. My name's Lindsay Gorey, and I'm filling in for Chuck Mertz today. It's July 13th, 2022. I'm recording live in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And I'm filling in for Chuck because he got surgery last week. And so now he has to recover from said surgery. And uh, hopefully he'll be projected. He's projecting to be back, I think, next week. That's the 18th. So last week was my first limbo episode when Chuck was preparing for surgery. And, oh, to update you, as far as I know, Chuck is alive and well. Uh, so it sounds like our greatest, we sent our greatest vibes and they did work. So good job, everybody. And last week, you know, I listened back to my recording and I said it was June, June 6th or whatever it was. It was July And I thought that was pretty funny because it was literally my mom's birthday and I knew that. But it happens. And uh, (laughs) sorry if I confused any listeners, but it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around the timing of this broadcast. Like, I'm live streaming right now. It's 10.03 a.m. CDT or whatever it is. And, but... So I'm talking to like six people, it says six listeners, but in the future, that's when the majority of people are gonna hear this. So does it matter if you know what day it is? I think it does, I think it does. But, you know, I have to remember while I'm here alone in the studio that I'm not just talking to myself. There are listeners, whether they are here now or in the future. So hello listeners. And also, when I told Sebastian about, you know, my mistake, uh, he was like, time's a social construct, so don't worry about it. And that just reminds me of when I was a Zoom teacher for one semester and I had a student in a social life applications class, and he would, every time I said the word social construct, he would log out of the Zoom. (laughs) And it was hilarious, I have to give him that. well, my background's in sociology, so I guess that's why I was doing that job. But my my study background, anyways. Um, but, you know, after I graduated, I kind of felt like sociology can be a little human-centric, you know, in terms of... I just realized I wasn't recording, so I just hit record. But if you're listening on Mixler, we got the beginning. Don't worry, guys. So, yeah, that's what I mean about streaming live. So I was just talking about how sociology is human-centric, because we think we're, like, the only beings that create societies, even though I don't think that's true. You know, there's beehives and ant hives, and I don't even know what else. But that's why I've been a little bit more into the anthropology lately, because humans... We're not just interacting with each other, we're also interacting with plants and animals on the daily, you know? What are you eating to stay alive? You need plants, we need plants. We would have, no- we would have nothing without them. And also, to go back to the example of time as a social construct, I mean, even then, 
humans didn't completely make up time by themselves. It, there was indeed a development of our, you know, measurement of time in relationship with the development of astrology and astronomy, you know. All, all human cultures could look up at the sky, it was dark, there, weren't, there wasn't electricity yet. So, you know, people paid attention to this stuff and, yeah, like for example, I'm reading this on a full moon. And it's in Capricorn if you follow the Western Zodiac, which I do, because I'm a white person. <laughs> and the Capricorn moon happens during cancer season, which is, means that the days are the longest in the year up here in the Northern Hemisphere anyways. Um, but they're starting to lose length. And as humans, we think we have this special kind of consciousness. But if you think about plants, they're much more conscious of this change in the sun cycle, you know, in the sun and the moon cycle. As Pete, the bar owner of Carrie's, told me the other night, like, isn't moonlight just sunlight reflected? I was like, yeah, I guess it is. But anyways, I'm just saying plants and other things. Uh, why, why do we think humans are more conscious? Maybe in certain ways. Like, I think we have, we can manipulate electromagnetic radiation and get a radio show to you. But... Not everybody <laughs> is noticing even the change of the seasons, which brings us all of the food that we eat. So, anyways, all this talk of time reminds me of two things that have to do with time. The first thing is that this does matter when you listen to this episode. So if you're listening Saturday on uh, WNUR, you've still got time. It hasn't passed. This is art the annual art show happening, I believe in, it's, it's in conjunction with, it's, we're honored to be part of the 50th anniversary celebration of Carrie's Lounge. Uh, so this is uh, gonna be at the Second Story Studios above Carrie's, which is where I'm recording now. This event is on Facebook, and I don't think I've said the date yet, did I? It's Saturday, July 23rd. That is like a week and a half from today and one week from now if you're listening on Saturday, 2 p.m. KRE's Lounge, be there. That's the 50th anniversary. You can only go to that once. Again, talking about time, you can only go to the 50th anniversary celebration once. Next year's gonna be 51, after that it's gonna be 52. 50, you gotta go on Saturday, July 23rd, 2022 at 2 p.m. Support Pete, who supports us in a lot of ways, and is really cool. All right, Pete owns the bar downstairs, if you guys don't know. So, anyways, that brings me to the second thing, which is what I have to do here today at 10.09 a.m., which is playback, you know, this episode. Um, but also, I'm going to read the question from hell in the future so i suppose i'll read that to you now which is this week's question from hell who are you thanking for their service i love this question my dad's a mailman shout out dad so thank you mailman for their service today <laughs> um i mean i'm thanking a lot of people for their service like you know we'll get to that later i can't wait to see the responses but 
Uh, I just talked to Sebastian, and we forgot to post on Twitter earlier this week. But Sebastian should be on it, so if you happen to be listening right now, you nine people, and you want to get in on this week's question from hell, so that you could possibly win a piece of This Is Hell merchandise, you gotta get your response in on Twitter in, like, I'd say 40 minutes, because... That's probably about when I'll be reading them, and I think I might be choosing a winner this week. I don't know. I think everybody's... I'm going to read them all up, and I'm going to choose his response, I think. But if that changes, I'll let you know. So anyways, back to the time, the time that I have now to play back. This interview from 2015 with Anna Lowenhaupt-Singh. It's called On Survival, Growth, in mushrooms in the ruins of capitalism. So Anna Tsing was the author of the book called The Mushroom at the End of the World. She's an anthropologist. So like I was saying about sociology being a little human-centric, I guess I've been liking anthropology a little bit more lately because of, uh, I don't know, they talk about you know biology and stuff sometimes. So, this is from 2015, and I just saw also we have an interview with Anna from 2020. Uh, I closed it, so... Here, it's called Mapping Life, Death, and Ferality in the Anthropocene from November 11th, 2020. So, it was a hard one to decide which one to play. But if you've been listening the last few weeks, uh, Chuck has been grilling me on my new mushroom capitalism job. I'm a mushroom salesperson at the farmer's market. And so this, I've been meaning to read this book for a minute. I didn't even know it had been out this long. October 31st, 2015, that was Halloween 2015, Anna did this episode. Spooky, right? It is a little spooky. We're talking about the ruins of capitalism. Capitalism is spooky. So, perfect timing. Anyways, Mushrooms. What do they have to do with time? Well, you can only find them at certain times. They're, it's not really like plants where you can see like the whole plant like as it's growing all season because the main body of a mushroom is its mycelial structure, which is underground or in a dead log, like, you know, breaking things down and spreading. And so the actual mushroom is actually the reproductive body of the species and picking it does no damage to the mycelium in fact it actually helps it out because your motion sets the spores in motion there's millions of spores all over like any mushroom i think i don't know there are a lot of mushrooms i don't claim to be an expert but i do spend like hours at a time with mushrooms working for the man the mushroom man so you know, when I get it a little down, I start talking to the mushrooms in my head, and I'll let you know if they tell me anything good. But we're going to let Anna talk about whatever they know about mushrooms. I mean, this is about foraging, like people who forage, you know, a very expensive kind of mushroom. And it reminds me of all the people coming up to me at the farmer's market and being like, do you have fresh morels? 
And morels are a, a foraged mushroom that costs like $70 a pound fresh or like and up to like $200 a pound dry. And I've never eaten one. Like I've never eaten one and I've been foraging for like a couple years. So this interview, that's why I'm playing it. The words out of Chuck's mouth about foraging hit straight into, you know, <laughs> what I love about foraging. And, uh, and again, I've been doing it and I've never found a morel. I mean, I'm from Arizona where they don't have them there, but here in Illinois, I've never found one, never eaten one. Um, but I just think it's interesting, like, like all the money in the world could buy you morels if you want, but like, do, do you even know, like, you know, <laughs> what it takes to get that? It's random. It's very, mushroom hunting is random. And so it feels amazing when you find a mushroom. Like the, the greatest day of my life was when me and my friend were out in Indiana and found a 10 pound chicken in the woods, like perfectly fresh. Cause you know, if you miss them in a couple of days, they dry up and chicken in the woods, Google it, bright yellow and orange mushroom, absolutely delicious and has an insane amount of protein for a mushroom. So it really is like eating meat. <sighs> but anyways, I'm just rambling about, you know, one of the greatest days of my life, finding that, that, that mushroom. And uh, so I totally, just keep an eye out on your walks. You don't even have to go walk out on the forest. Just, you have to look at the ground and you have to look at the bottom tree stumps. Like, that's where you see them. And you know, there are apps now, it's 2021, or, I'm sorry, it's 2022. And there are apps now that can help identify plants and mushrooms and it's very helpful and they're free too so google that google that because this is survival stuff um this is survival stuff so all right i'm trying to find where i downloaded this interview because i know i did downloads downloads uh here it is so yeah in this interview chuck talks a minute about like cage mushroom hunting which we talked about a couple weeks ago too and I just learned about that like that was for survival like he he needed food to eat so he went and learned what kind of mushrooms he could eat and there's some of them that are very delicious and like he eventually got so good at it he was like making money to support his like experimental music career by selling foraged wild mushrooms to like expensive restaurants in New York City which, yeah, a wild mushroom. I'm only selling cultivated mushrooms right now uh, at this farmer's market. But a wild mushroom, that's got to be different, right? I don't know. I'm going to hit play now. I'm going to turn this music off, this background music. That's how we produce the show. And I'm teaching you guys how to produce the show if you ever want to join us. <laughs> uh, and... Enjoy this episode with Anna Singh from 2015 on the mushroom at the end of the world. This is hell. Where do we go from here? What can exist, even thrive, amidst the ruins that just may show us a way to survive post-capitalism? Here to tell us what a mushroom reveals about the state of our globalized planet and our post-capitalist future Anna Lone Opt Singh 
an anthropologist who is the author of the new book, The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. Hello, Anna. Hello. Hello. It's great to have you on this show. This book is fascinating, and by the way, it's heavy. It is a thin yeah. book, and it is incredibly heavy, so that must mean high paper quality and a lot of nice pictures. I was surprised myself. I suppose you could use it doubly for a doorstop or a self-defense weapon. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's a beautiful book. You write that uh, ever since the Enlightenment, Western philosophers have shown us a nature that is grand and universal, but also passive and mechanical. Nature has was a backdrop and resource for the moral intentionality of man, with capital M, which could tame and master nature, with capital N. It was left to fabulous, including non-Western and non-civilizational storytellers to remind us of the lively activities of all beings, human and non-human. Uh, several things have happened to undermine this division of labor. First uh, of all, uh, that taming and uh, mastering has made such a mess that it is unclear whether life on Earth can continue. And second, interspecies entanglements that once seemed the stuff of fables are now materials for serious discussion among biologists and ecologists who show how life requires the interplay of many kinds of beings. Humans cannot survive by stomping on others. And third and finally, women and men from around the world have clamored to be included in the status once given only to man. Our riotous presence undermines the moral intentionality of man's Christian masculinity, which separated man from nature. I thought that was a beautiful entry, and but the taming and mastering continues seemingly unabated to the yeah. point of the Arctic paradox, where you have the Arctic melting, releasing greenhouse uh, using gases. Uh, biodiversity is often mocked. The voices of the marginalized, no matter who, how much uh, if things are improving, they're still marginalized. So how much have we moved into a post-Enlightenment era? In terms of the kind of um, uh, projects that under, undermine the ability of our own environment to support us, we're not doing very well at all. <laughs> we are continuing at full pace to destroy everything around us with the terrifying possibility that our own livability will be in question pretty soon. And you write how it reminds you there are still pleasures amidst the terrors of inter, in, uh, indeterminacy. Uh, th those terrors include the world's climate going haywire and industrial uh, progress has proved much more deadly to life on Earth than anyone imagined a century ago. The economy is no longer a source of growth or optimism. Any of our jobs uh, could disappear with the next economic crisis. Yet there are those, and unfortunately I received one of these books in the mail this week, there are those that argue the global economy economy is doing some good and that those in the developing world are seeing advances. They see statistics showing that those in the developing world are experiencing an unprecedented reduction in poverty amongst the world's poorest who are experiencing increased incomes, improved health care, reduction of conflict and war, and even more democracy. So are things getting more bleak due to the economy? New studies show wealth disparity undermining democracy. And still things are getting better for those who are the most impoverished? Is that still, are the two things happening? The economy is getting worse, but it's getting better for the most poor? <laughs> well, the big change that I found very striking um, is that in the 20th century, there was 
a story that ordinary people as well as elites could tell about how things were going to get better, that every generation would do better than their parents. There was this sense that if we just kept on modernizing the world, everything would get better uh, for everyone. I think that sense that all we have to do is keep doing the same things and things will get better, that's disappeared for many of us in both the global north and the global south. So whether we're doing well or we're doing really badly, it's not because we have expectations that the world is going our direction. More and more people are stuck with precarious kinds of livelihoods. That is those where there's no job security, there's no view ahead, there's no sense that you'll be able to provide for a family into the future. Sometimes those have turned out to be kind of lucrative, and sometimes they've been a total bust. And in many cases, lucrative for a while turns into a bust afterwards. But this is a very different kind of set of expectations that we are forced to bear than in the 20th century, where people thought that getting better was about stability, security, and wages and benefits. Less and less people have those. Exactly. And you write how, quote, promises of modernization backed by American bombs was supposed to fill the world, both capitalist and communist, with jobs and not just any jobs, but standard employment with stable wages and benefits. The irony of our times, then, is that everyone depends on capitalism, but almost no one has what we used to call a regular job. If that's the case, if the system is no longer delivering, and if if, if we've had to adapt... Uh, to an outcome that we were not promised, then to you, what explains the lack of a revolution? Or is the revolution the way we are adapting without capitalism already? Well, it seems to me that the system that we've entered is one where different groups of people are trying to figure out how to survive in quite different ways, that my mushroom pickers are just one example of hundreds and thousands of different kinds of livelihood options that people strive uh, to, with which people strive to make a living. That perhaps in the 19th century, the industrial working class seemed to have a certain kind of unity that might lead to a single revolutionary spirit. That's pretty hard now, where different groups of people are working at very different uh, kinds of economic uh, strategies. And so if we're going to try and figure out ways to work together, it's going to be all about working across those differences. That's going to be the challenge. You mentioned precarity earlier, and you write how precarity once seemed the fate of the less fortunate. Now it seems that all our lives are precarious, even when, for the moment, our pockets are lined. In contrast to the mid-20th century, uh, when poets and philosophers of the global north felt caged by too much stability, now many of us, north and south, confront the condition of trouble without end. How do you see that reflected in our culture or our daily lives? Is this precarity something that we take for granted that we've adapted to, or is it something in plain sight and kind of open secret? The open secret thing uh, sounds uh, very right to me, because I, on the one hand, hear uh, all the time you can hear stories that sound like the 20th century dream is still in place, stories about immigrants who make a million dollars or other kinds of success stories, and yet... uh, the, the 
reality for most of the people I know is a kind of scrambling to see what's going to work and the the kinds of uh, insecurities about whether education is going to lead us to jobs, for example, what ways are there to prepare our children for the future, that all of that has to do, I think, with what you're calling the open secret. You write that precarity is the condition of being vulnerable to others, and that is the condition of our time. How much has globalization made us more vulnerable to uh, others and make our lives uh, one of precariousness? Well, there's two kinds of precarity that I'm thinking about in the book. One is, and both of them have always been there, but I think there's a new realization, for better or for worse, that they are our challenges right now. And one of them is ecological precarity, that we're breaking down some of the kinds of interspecies coordinations with our own modernization programs that have made it possible for us to take for granted that nature was there for us as a set of resources and as a set of ecological services. So there's a new sense of precarity of the environment. As for the economy, it's not globalization in the sense of having new uh, participants in a global economy, but rather the breakdown of the corporation as a social institution in the United States that has given rise to a sense that everyone's on their own trying to figure out how to make a living. So that kind of precarity has to do with a particular set of historical events. You quote a radical pamphlet putting it this way, the specter that many try not to see is a simple realization. The world will not be saved. If we don't believe in a global revolutionary future, we must live as we in fact always had to in the present. Can we live in that global revolutionary future if we are in any way still tied to the current system that offers no future? To collaborate with nature, do we need to shirk modernity? Ah. <laughs> uh, I think coming up with alternatives to our most egregious environmental practices is absolutely essential for this time. I don't think most of the people who are listening to your radio program have the option of just jumping out of the system in all ways immediately. But I think it's urgent that we start to find some places where we feel like we're collaborating with the uh, animals, plants, fungi, etc., around us rather than undermining them, as we constantly do in our industrial practices. So, yes, let's find alternatives now. Do you think that that collaboration with, uh, with nature, do you think that that would be better for our bottom line than the current state of capitalism? Well, uh, I think... The, the, there's the danger that what you're calling the current state of capitalism is going to finish us off. And in that sense, um, lots of things would be better. <laughs> right. Uh, you write about the history of the human concentrations of wealth through making both humans and non-humans into resources and investment. This history has inspired investors to imbibe both people and things with alienation, that is, the ability to stand alone as if the entanglements of living 
do not matter. I thought that that was amazing because it makes it seem like uh, everything is a vacuum, lives in a vacuum, and nothing mm-hmm. is related to each other. So does giving something a price, does that disconnect it from nature? I don't, I don't think it's the price. I think it's the practices of ecological simplification. And it's why one of my examples is a plantation, which is an industrial monocrop, where you take away all the other kinds of species that work together to make a particular plant, animal, or living resource alive. And you try and just grow one thing at a time, which can maximize profit, but uh, also lets forth all kinds of pests and pathogens that didn't exist before. Uh, The mushrooms that I described in the book have a price, but they aren't that kind of commodity. They're connected to the forest, and I try and argue the ways that we might not have forests at all if it wasn't for the interconnection between trees and mushrooms, that the mushrooms are feeding the trees even as the trees are feeding the mushrooms. So it's that kind of interconnection that we could be paying more attention to. You write about how once a resource is used up, the land is abandoned, like timber being uh, stripped from a forest. But you add, still, these places can be lively despite the announcements of their death. Abandoned asset fields sometimes yield new multi-species and multicultural life. In a global state of precarity, we don't have choices other than looking for life in this ruin. So is this destruction good? Uh, well, by saying it's a place that we can look, I'm not trying to condone more destruction. Let's not uh, do more destruction. But yes, the places that have already been turned into industrial ruins can be very lively places, and those are places that we can look to for understanding multi-species entanglement. You write about contamination. That is, we are contaminated by our, our encounters. They change who we are as we make way for others. As contamination changes, world-making projects, mutual worlds, and new directions may emerge. Everyone carries a history of contamination. Purity is not an option. One value of keeping precarity in mind is that it makes us remember that changing with circumstances is the stuff of survival. Is not changing then death? Can you survive by hearkening back to a long lost time or holding on to a culture you feel slipping away? Uh, Yes, absolutely. And I I think uh, part of the example that I'm giving right there in the chapter you're reading is uh, refugees have come to the United States from Laos and Cambodia, and they are holding on to ethnic and cultural identities as a way of building survival. And surprisingly enough, for example, uh, one of the kinds of abilities that they're able to pull from their earlier lives in Southeast Asia is a familiarity with walking in in the forest that serves them really well as mushroom pickers and makes them uh, feel a kind of enjoyment in uh, this livelihood activity. We are speaking with 
Anna Lohenhaupt Singh. She is an anthropologist and author of The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. Anna is professor of anthropology at the University of uh, California, Santa Cruz, and a Niels Bohr professor at Aarhus University in Denmark, where she co-directs Aarhus University research on the Anthropocene. Uh, Anna is an award-winning author whose last book, prior to The Mushroom at the End of the World, was Friction, an Ethnography of Global Connection. In an article at the American Scholar, as, as an article that the American Scholar puts it, you write how the Matsutake mushroom and its entangled network of foragers, traders, and buyers are a global system that thrives on the precarious margins of society. It's an economic case study for the Anthropocene, the story of a profitable species that survives in the ecological wreckage that unchecked capitalism created. So how do they stay, how does that industry, how does the Matsutake mushroom industry, how does that stay on the precarious margins of society? Aren't they just as commodified as everything else? Uh, I, part of what I'm trying to argue is that at the heart of capitalism today, as well as in the margins, these kinds of precarious livelihoods have become what capitalism is using in order to make to pull profits into the center that if we look at computer programmers uh, truck drivers uh, many of the kinds of occupations that used to be associated with wage and benefits packages now they're independent contractors so uh, these kinds of situations of which mushroom picking in all its weirdness exemplifies what it means to have a precarious livelihood. These have become the stuff of capitalism today. What makes Matsutake so unique? Because you give a little history and how they've been praised even in poetry dating back to the 8th century. Does the fact that they came from places of ruin, like the deforested mountains around Kyoto, does that give them a cultural significance within Japan? Is that what makes them so unique? Uh, No, that's not... What, why Japanese love them. Japanese love them because they have a very distinctive smell, and the smell reminds people of the autumn season. And so they're one of that set of foods that allows people to notice the changing of the seasons. And so they, they form a kind of connection to uh, the natural world for Japanese. They're also associated with peasant forests, the village forests that were kept by peasants as places for firewood and charcoal and um, all kinds of resources that were used in farming. Um, and these, uh, these somewhat disturbed peasant forests were the places for Matsutake, so they also became the familiar places for thinking about family relations and about village life. You write that when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, thousands of Siberians suddenly deprived of government guarantees ran to the woods to collect mushrooms. While these aren't the same kinds of mushrooms that you are discussing in your book, you write how it makes your point. The uncontrolled lives of mushrooms are a gift and a guide when the controlled world we thought we had fails. Your book immediately made me want to be crazy like John Cage for mushrooms. It made me want to forage for them, learn best to identify identify them, make certain I don't kill myself, make certain I know all their effects. What does it say to you, though, about my relationship or our relationship in general with nature? When I do not know how to identify food, 
unless it's on a supermarket shelf, or about our culture that doesn't trust food unless it's on a shelf labeled commodified package and waiting to be bought. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think that's part of the problem, that part of the reason that we think the plantation or the agribusiness is the way to make food rather than some of the many alternatives that have been shown to be quite productive uh, has to do with consumers who've been trained to only expect food to emerge from supermarket shelves. That as we uh, open up other alternatives for uh, gaining a relationship with food as it grows uh, together with other plants and animals, I think there's at least a possibility that we could move our agro-industrial system, too, in new directions. You write, imagine first nature to mean ecological relations, including humans, and second nature to refer to capitalist transformations of the environment. You then write how uh, your book then offers third nature, that is, what manages to live despite capitalism. How does the Matsutake mushroom industry exist despite capitalism? Well, I, I, I mean, it both the, the industry exists because of capitalism, but the uh, the appearance of Matsutake comes in Oregon because of the ruination of industrial forests that uh, started out as forests of ponderosa pines that were kept in place in part by Native American burning. Uh, when white settlers got there, they saw them as dream places to cut down trees, and cut down trees they did, uh, that the Oregon became the center of uh, the U.S. timber industry. And when they cut them down, they found it pretty hard to regrow the same kinds of pines that they had just cut. Instead, uh, this host of among firs and lodgepole pines grew up instead. By chance, the combination of this weedy lodgepole pine growth in Oregon, uh, in the central Oregon area, plus the fire suppression that the Forest Service um, put into place allowed these lodgepoles to get older than they would have if they had been burning down all the time and created just the right environment for these Matsutake mushrooms to grow. So for them, it's this somewhat ruined industrial forest that turned out to be the place that was very productive for Matsutake. You write how your book is not a critique of the dreams of modernization and progress that offered a vision of stability in the 20th, 20th century. Instead, I address the imaginative challenge of living without these handrails, which once made us think we knew collectively where we were going. Matsutake mushrooms can catapult us into the curiosity that seems to me the first requirement of collaborative survival in precarious times. Does collaborative survival necessarily mean something outside of the typically uh, commodity-driven market? I mean, picking a mushroom and eating it doesn't add profit to the system, and the wealth can't trickle down or be redirected into the local and eventually uh, national and global economy, can it? Um, I'm not sure I understood your question. Well, but... I, I guess what I'm trying to get to is just through foraging, if, if for instance, let's say I am foraging on my own, isn't uh -huh. that necessarily bad for the economy because I'm, I'm not adding anything to it? I'm taking I something see. out of the ground and I'm eating it myself. Well, actually, of course, these foragers are foraging commercially, and so uh, they are making a living through this foraging. But it, it seems to me, in general... If we want to have a world with animals and plants, which I think is the only world that we'll be able to live in, 
we are going to have to pay attention to the kind of interspecies entanglements that allow those livable landscapes that we want to be a part of, that give us the ability to continue eating and breathing and the other things that we tend to take for granted. So that collaborative survival is not about the survival of capitalism. It's about the physical survival of living plants and animals, including us. You write that Matsutake mushrooms illuminate the cracks in the global political economy. Many Matsutake foragers are displaced and disfranchised cultural minorities in the U.S. Pacific Northwest, for example. Most commercial Matsutake foragers are refugees from Laos and Cambodia. Because of high prices, Matsutakes make a substantial uh, contribution to livelihood wherever, wherever they are picked and even encourage cultural revitalizations. When I hear, though, about disenfranchised cultural minorities profiting from a resource, it's usually a story of how that minority is being exploited as cheap labor by distribution firms who make most of the profit and take it out of the community to even be spent elsewhere. So has that kind of situation happened with the Matsutake mushroom industry? I'm pleased to say that despite the fact that I know all those cases that you're talking about, and I think it's right that we should be concerned about them, Matsutake is one of the kind of better examples we can think of, I can think of, of what marginalized people might be able to do, and especially people who've, you know, worked so hard to survive uh, wars, that uh, the Matsutake uh, business uh, does, because it allows individual foragers to pick and to sell, that it's been uh, not so much a source of exploitation, but as a source of a kind of livelihood that foragers are excited to do and have been able, when the prices are good, to make real money. In, you were talking about how in the autumn, that's when these mushrooms come out. That's when the Matsutake mushrooms come out. You were talking about the smell that they have. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about this mushroom so much. I want to make sure that our audience knows a little bit more about it on its own, as far as mm. tactily, as far as what they taste like. Tell, tell people what a Matsutake mushroom is like. What's the smell like? What's the taste like? What makes it so attractive? Uh it, it's attractive in Japan because of this smell. And it's a hard smell for people of European origin to get used to. In fact, one California mycologist has uh, provocatively, I think he calls it a provocative juxtaposition between red hots and dirty socks. <laughs> and uh, when you smell it, you can get that scent. But uh, over time, one comes to value it. It becomes a smell full of joy, as people in Japan have taught me to, uh, to, to sense it. Um, it's also a very elusive mushroom that in Oregon, if you wait for the mushroom to come up from under the ground, you're probably not going to find it, that it spends a lot of its time under the ground. So you're looking for a tiny crack that just shows that there might be something underneath. And therefore, it's a kind of foraging that, that forces uh, the people out there to notice uh, everything in the ground around them as they're looking for these cracks. You write what you do when your world, what do you do when your world starts to fa- fall apart? You say, I go for a walk, and, I'm, and if I'm really lucky, I find mushrooms. Is it mushrooms 
or is it foraging, picking fruit, vegetables, or herbs of any kind that can give you the connection to nature that makes you feel better despite the world falling apart? Or is there, to you, something specific in particular about mushrooms, not just foraging in general? I think foraging in general is great, and that mushrooms have a very special quality, too, because you have to be there at the right time and the right place. You just can't predict it. So it's a very exciting experience to go out to the woods to look for mushrooms. You never know what you're going to find. Uh, You write, a few years into the new century, the idea of a trade-off between jobs and the environment seemed less convincing. With or without conservation, there were fewer jobs in the 20th century. Since in the United States, uh, besides, it, it seemed much more likely that environmental damage would kill us all off, jobs or no jobs. We are stuck with the problem of living despite economic and ecological ruination. Neither tales of progress nor of ruin tell us how to think about collaborative survival. It is time to pay attention to mushroom pick. Not that this will save us, but it might open our imagination. How did mushroom picking directly spark, open your own imagination? One of the ways was realizing uh, through uh, paying attention to mushrooms and talking to those who know more than I do, that there's a whole world under there, under the soil, that we don't pay very much attention to. We think of the liveliness of the world and all its species as something we can see in the air and the soil around us. But underneath, if you were under the soil, you would see what I think of as a whole city full of social interactions, full of traffic, full of movement, full of multiple kinds of plants and animals, fungi and bacteria, that there's a whole world down there. And it's a world that makes uh, our world up here possible that the idea that forests themselves depend on this connection with fungi, that we might not have forests because it's the fungi that feed the trees that allow them to become strong enough to become uh, dominant trees within the forest, that these uh, connections give us the ecologies that then we depend on for our lives. When I told our producer that in Japan uh, these Matsutake mushrooms can go for $2,000 a kilo, uh, he said, you know, I can get these at a Japanese grocery store not very far from my house, and they're certainly not $2,000 a kilo. So our audience can understand this. What makes it so my producer can go buy Matsutake mushrooms at far less than $2,000 a kilo, but it costs that much for them to grow in Japan? I think that people need to know why Mm -hmm. this is the case. Well, first, let me say, compared to other mushrooms in the United States, even Matsutake at my local Japanese store are incredibly expensive. At last, I looked, they're about $80 a pound, which for an American mushroom is still pretty expensive. So uh, they're not cheap. On the other hand, uh, there is a very subtle hierarchy of kinds of mushrooms that people in Japan care a whole lot about where the mushroom is from, what kind of mushroom it is, what condition it's in, that the very highest quality mushrooms, for example, grow in those um, somewhat eroded hills outside of Kyoto. Those are the, the very most special mushrooms. And then there's a hierarchy. And by the time you get to American Matsutake mushrooms, they're not considered, the smell is not considered as beautiful as the Japanese mushrooms. 
uh, you're, you tell the story of how matsutake were so prevalent in Japan at one time that the word was synonymous with mushroom in Kyoto, but development strategies and land use changed, and suddenly Japan had no or very, very <laughs> little matsusake. Uh, yet the demand is high in Japan in the 1970s when all this is happening is seeing rapid economic development creating a demand that drives uh, supply from around the world. Considering the carbon footprint of these mushrooms when they are forged from around the world <laughs> to a demand specifically in Japan where there are no or very limited matsusake how much is this mushroom that goes from capital that grows from capitalist ruins actually leading to the part of those ruins that are climate change <laughs> is the matsutake both a survivor of ruins but now when you add in how many flight miles they travel also bringing about that ruin that's a great question. But just to compare in terms of volume, when I found out that in California, rather than growing their own button mushrooms in greenhouses, as they did maybe 20 years ago, uh, and it's very easy, they outsource mushroom growing. Uh, and we're talking now about those little white mushroom, button mushrooms you get in any grocery store in the United States, that they outsource those to China. And if you think of the sheer volume of button mushrooms that's coming back and forth across the uh, Pacific, the matsutake is a kind of irrelevant. It's so small. Uh, but yes, of course, it has a carbon footprint there. So uh, it's been really a pleasure having you on. We were speaking with Anna Loan Singh. She is an anthropologist, author of The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. Anna is professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a Niels Bohr professor at Aarhus University in Denmark, where she co-directs the Aarhus University research on the Anthropocene. Anna is an award-winning author whose last book prior to The Mushroom at the End of the World was Friction, an ethnography of global connection. Anna, with each and every one of our guests, we end the interview with what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. Uh, You offer another usage for the word survival and what it means. You argue, quote, that staying alive for every species requires livable collaborations, Without collaborations, we all die. How much, then, have we already died, or to what extent are we dying when we see the extinctions happening to so many species around the world? I think, indeed, it's why we need to think about the industrial process very hard, because it's not even the extinctions that have happened already. It's the extinctions that are coming. Um. I just looked up the number on plants that the IUCN has just looked at, not very many plants, but of the ones they've looked at, some 13,000, 68% are threatened with extinction. That's really extraordinary, and a lot of it has to do with the industrialization of plants and plant products that uh, brings pathogens, uh, creates new virulent pathogens and spreads them around the world. That one of the reasons they don't have matsutake in Japan, for example, is a nematode that got brought from the United States with a shipment of industrial timber has now been killing the pine trees in Japan. And um, and 
uh, with them the matsutake mushrooms. The reason matsutake mushrooms are so scarce in Japan is in part because of this nematode, which was spread by the industrial plant trade. So yes, it's a really hard answer to say we have to look very carefully about whether it's worth it to industrialize all our life resources at the risk of killing ourselves and them. Uh, one last question, uh, Anna. You know, when I was uh, reading your book and I was thinking about these uh, this concept of livable collaborations, uh, I started thinking about some places that I have seen capitalism in ruin, like in my hometown in Detroit, uh, here in Chicago, in sections of uh, Chicago, I have seen capitalism in ruins. And when I think about these livable collaborations, am I am, am I stretching? your definition, because what I started thinking of was the way that human beings have to collaborate, that this is also a book that's condoning, you know, it, or implying at least, uh, support for multiculturalism and an opposition to racism. Am, am I reading too much into this? No, I, you're completely right. And I think, indeed, those ruined capitalist spaces are precisely where, while this hardly condones making more of them, Perhaps we have the chance to create multiracial coalitions for issues like health care and job development, uh, political mobilizations of all kinds. Well, this is a fascinating and, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, very heavy book. <laughs> uh, our, our guest has been Anna Lohenopt Singh. She is an anthropologist and author of The Mushroom at the End of the World on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. Thank you so much for being on our show, and uh, we look forward to possibly bugging you in the future when this comes out in paperback or as a movie that I'm sure I'll star in. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care, Anna. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more hell, visit thisishell.com. Hey there. This is Lindsay again. Still filling in for Chuck. And honestly, I cannot believe that that episode was recorded in 2015 and that they still haven't made a movie out of Anna Lowen Singh's book, at least I'm aware of, and that Chuck didn't star in it. I think it could still happen. I'm still holding out hope. So today, I still have the question from Hal and also the moment of truth to get to, but I just want to say a couple things about that interview, because like I said, I love foraging and this is a super great thing to think about. Chuck asked one question about if individuals forging can hurt the economy. Like, can we take down capitalism by not paying for our food? You know, and I've been forging for a couple years. So I think about this a lot. Like, I might not be paying money for foraging food, but I'm definitely paying my labor to do. Foraging is a very physical thing. You can be attacked by bugs <laughs> you can get stung by plants you know you could eat something poisonous on accident so you gotta know what you're doing um it is work uh but i do say that I'm, i don't think about it so much as like a blow to i mean i kind of do that i don't have to buy as much food from like you know the monocultural agricultural capitalists but it really is to me more directly a way of like 
gaining power outside of the system and outside of the capitalist system, whether that's like literally nutritional power of like, I'm eating this food and wild food has very diverse nutrients in it. And, or, you know, like they were talking about these people selling Matsutake mushrooms, like, you know, you can wildcraft things, turn it into tincture or whatever, like, or sell it fresh. Like, that's building economic power without selling your labor to another person. Or, you know, I think of it also as, like, a spiritual power of just, like, being in relationship with plants. It's very important. Like, we think, we've been taught to think that, like, going to the grocery store is better because it's, like, easier and more convenient but we lose the relationship of how that food grows and how it got there. And that's what got humans to even be here right now. So if we destroy that, we destroy <laughs> our existence. I think that's kind of exactly what uh, Anna Singh was saying. Uh, but you know, why trust me? I'm just a person who's using my BS degree, literally bachelor's science and sociology to sell mushrooms at farmer's markets. I don't know, trust it for what you will, but I think, you know, at least these mushrooms, I don't know, they're coming from Wisconsin, not all the way across the ocean, so. I, it's one job that I feel okay about, because I'm basically just, like, getting people nutrients, like, here are your shiitake mushroom medicine, you know, I don't feel so bad about that. Uh, and, you know, the last thing I'll say is my theory, and I don't want the biologists coming for me, biologists coming for me about this, because, like I said, I have a degree in sociology, and I think of this more in the art realm, but I think that metaphorically humans are, are like a fungus. Like, I mean, I think I've heard that, I've heard that animals evolve from fungus, like we're closer related to fungus than we are to the plants. And I think that the way we, like, our culture spreads and communication and relationships spread is a lot like mushroom mycelium. And, like, we can't see that, the web of culture. We can't see the web of the internet. But can a mushroom see its own mycelium? I don't think it can. Like, I, maybe it can. Maybe it has some kind of eyeballs that I don't know about, but maybe we don't need to be able to see our mycelium web. And, uh, but individual humans are a lot like the reproductive bodies of mushrooms, you know? Like, we pop up from the earth individually and interact with each other, spread the spores, the seeds, whatever, you know, and keep it going. You keep that mycelial culture spreading when we keep having more kids. So, anyways, we're just like fungus. All we do is destroy and deconstruct things. We turn them into landfills. Uh, you know, you can th see like how our culture has a direct impact on the environment, how we have a throwaway culture, like we think our trash just disappears when it doesn't, it goes to landfill. <sighs> um, but we also do things like create poo, which we then use a w in America, we have mostly a flush toilet system where we use clean drinking water to deal with it. Um, when every other animal on earth just, you know, poop straight onto the earth <laughs> it's like you know kind of giving something back to it but that brings us to compost which is what we can do with our waste if we're thinking straight um a lot like you know mushrooms how they break stuff down into compost um anyways biologists don't come for me <laughs>
Um, I wrote all of this down during that interview on the backs of Chuck's note paper because I didn't bring a notebook and I didn't want to use new paper, but Chuck has this like giant trash can of his old notes from past shows. So I used the backs. And, you know, I used that trash to create these new ideas and these words, and now I'm spreading it through electromagnet electromagnetic radiation to your ears, planting ideas in your brain. And, uh, you know, that's not just create, but, like, we're also burning electricity to do that, right? We're destroying electricity to be able to get this broadcast to you. So anyways... That is my thesis on life. And now I think, uh, yeah, like, that's my, my, I just am gonna try and prove it with art, which reminds me of the This Is Art show, which is next week, Saturday, July 23rd, 2022. Be there or don't, but you should definitely be there because it's only gonna happen once. You only have one chance. So we've got, artwork from a bunch of different artists you should go on facebook and join the event page hit that i'm going button so and you can read all those names of of artists there so all right let me make sure i need to check my zoom and jeffrey's ready to go for our moment of truth i do believe but let me just read the question from hell one more time um, if anybody needs to get their last minute response in on Twitter or Facebook, now is the time. You got like a few minutes. So this week's question, who are you thanking for their service? Who are you thanking for their service? Very good question this week. All right. Well, Jeff, I hope you're ready to go because I'm about to hit your intro and... Boom. One, two, you know what to do The voice at the Stone Age Seance. Are there any real mysteries left? Clearly, we're not the doe-eyed, innocent public we once were, back when Howdy Doody and Alka-Seltzer ruled the popular zeitgeist. It's not enough for things to be true anymore. Now they must pass a more rigorous test, the test of believability in the laboratory of public opinion. And yet somehow there still remain unsolved phenomena to boggle the jaded mind shake us out of our trances, and remind us never to trust our senses, our reason, our memory, or the evidence. We live in a truly miraculous time when anything can be true, but only the best things can be super true. It was a Saturday seance like any other. The medium a person sensitive to the presence of spirits of the dead who hovered close to the veil between worlds, intoned instructions to the others gathered and recited incantations. The one thing that stood out as different from any seance you might be picturing is that it took place 
34,000 years ago, and all the participants were Stone Age cave people. Did they have candles? No. The cave they had gathered in was lit with twisted plant fiber wicks, soaking in animal fat, pooled in divots, carved at intervals into the stone tabletop. The tabletop was also decorated with red and yellow ochre designs constituting a complex diagram of the spirit world. This schematic bled out from the limits of the tabletop and spread throughout the cave, across the floor, up the walls, and all over the ceiling. All the better for the Stone Age medium and the avids and adepts assembled to fully inhabit the spiritual realm in both an analogous and an aesthetic sense. They joined hands, connecting in a sacred circle, as their descendants would do in 19th century parlors tens of thousands of years later. The medium, or shaman, for that was her function in her tribe, now brought an eerie, deep tone to her incantations. Her voice was no longer her own indicating that she'd entered the trance that would allow her to pass through the barrier between the world of living bodies and that of the shades. The flames guttered in the breeze that passed over them as if a hot animal breath from deep within the cave's tunnels. The various hanging shell and bone chimes rattled. Crude furniture fashioned from logs clattered as they hopped and shivered around the chamber. The company were all used to this sort of thing. In caveman seances, this was just typical animation of the inanimate. Nothing out of the ordinary. Then, an unfamiliar voice intruded. The voice did not emerge from the mouth of the shaman, as would have been usual, but from the very darkness beyond the fringe of the firelight itself. They all heard it though as much with their minds as their ears, and though it was in a language that wouldn't develop until 30 millennia after those around the table were long dead, they understood the meaning the voice expressed, though many of the concepts were confusing. I have committed a random mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, the voice boasted. Who is speaking? asked the shaman in cavemanese. My name is Robert Cremo III, said the voice. Your name seems to be nothing but a collection of meaningless syllables, someone in the gathering responded, not in words, but in thought impressions. I guess, the voice called Cremo replied, noncommittal. Although the cave seancers did not know the meaning of the word shooting, they received a very clear vision of it from Cremo. Cremo the voice communicated in a collage of content ranging from memes to unfortunate rap performances. A dense amount could be communicated via these virtual elements. Why have you killed these people? One in the company asked. Well, not because I'm a Nazi, Cremo the voice said. I'm not a Nazi, although Nazis are fun to be and also fun to punch. They have funny frogs named Pepe, and it's fun to hunt them when they turn into werewolves. 
The cave people received this information from Cremo the Voice, not in verbal form, but as a collage of graphics, ideas, sound effects, and an all-over rumbling that was like a constant undertone that would have soothed a colicky baby, even a colicky cave baby, had not the data and lore come through blended in a frightening, sickening pastiche of an alien reality. I'm not the Joker, Cremo the Voice imparted the image of whom came through the rumbling ether as a cartoon figure in a maquette of an insane asylum set from a movie. The cave audience understood cinema as the future's version of paintings on cave walls, and like the cave paintings, the media coming to them from the future was both a portrait of a magic realm and the magic of the magic realm itself. They did not know who the Joker was, but they understood that Cremo the Voice was not the Joker, but was an imitation of the Joker, was employing the Joker to make fun of the world's fear of the Joker, but was also conjuring a genuine or quasi-genuine sadness at the tragedy of the Joker, which indeed was the tragedy of Cremo the Voice, but also was not. I am the shooter. Cremo the voice told them, but it was clear he was an imitation of a shooter, or rather the projection of the platonic ideal form of the shooter, with the same gun as the ideal form of the shooter wielded, and the same tragic comic life story of a misbegotten youth set loose in a confusing, uncaring, and barely real world. I shoot because I am the shooter. The voice of Cremo the Voice said with delight, and indeed the cave listeners were startled to find that they understood exactly what Cremo the Voice meant and what he was. I shoot because I am the shooter, was a crystalline revelation for all who perceived it, past and present and future. And I am the shooter because I shoot. Such a crystalline truth was this statement, and so freighted simultaneously with contradictory qualities of falsehood, truth, irony, and sincerity, that it could not remain a mere idea. It crystallized into solid existence, like a crystal in a cat's urinary tract, hung in the air like a jewel precipitating out of the numinous realm of spirit itself and fell to the stone table, a many-sided solid, like a diamond, but made mostly of salt and a little dirt. At that point, the spirit veil was lifted, and the shaman and her companions found they remembered none of what had happened, but also knew that all that had happened was somehow there in this crystal solid of dirty salt. And then a kind of ancient okapi came into the cave, spotted the crystal, made straight for the table, reached to the center with its moderately long neck, wrapped its prehensile tongue around the crystal, and fled with it in its mouth. And so even this solid souvenir of the seance was evanescent, and the event might just as well never have occurred at all. And maybe it didn't. We have no way of knowing. Because, as Cremo the Voice intimated, all is jokey illusion overlaid with illusion, and seeking the core of anything or anyone, even oneself, is a waste of time. And if that isn't super truth, I don't know what is. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! 
I heard that echo. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for your comments. Oh, by the way, I wanted to say, Brie Larson. Brie Larson? The, Brie Larson, the star of my underappreciated movie, Basmati Blues. Okay. Is a mushroom forager. <laughs> is she? Okay, Googling her. It, Brie it's, Larson it's, sounds familiar. I don't know. I'm it, not... It's even oh, in her. She her. plays yeah. Captain Marvel. So she is a actual mushroom forager or in the movie is a mushroom forager? No, she has it in her Twitter bio. Oh, shoot. I'll go follow her. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. I'm sorry. I forgot uh, to I forgot to read your tease. Your, uh, <laughs> what was it? I have it here now. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's edit it in backwards. <laughs> Jeff gives an unusual seance. That was indeed unusual. <laughs> But, All right. Yes. Sorry. I am lost here. I'm lost here without Chuck. You know. We like all Egan, are. We like all Egan are. Light. You know, this we is God's are. favorite radio, but I think Chuck is her favorite, you know. So. <laughs> Chuck is her favorite guy through hell. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's like Virgil in so, Dante's Inferno. So it's hard to live up to God's favorite talk show host, you know. Indeed. All right. Well, I'm All off. Right. Good day. Enjoy your Wednesday afternoon, Jeff, wherever you oh, are. I'm in uh, Encino, dog sitting with a giant pool. I'll send you photos. <laughs> well, that sounds luxurious, <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't wish anything worse for you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Time for this week's question from Hal. So, to go back to this Facebook page. What are you... Who are you thanking for your service? I guess you could also say, what are you thanking for your service? But who? Who are you thanking for your service? And on all that topic of garbage, I mean, I always am thanking my garbage people for their service. Like, when I run into them outside, if I'm like... If I hear the garbage truck coming, it's supposed to come at 9 a.m. Sometimes it comes early. But sometimes I know there's stuff outside that my neighbors are throwing away. and I. But I leave it to the last minute because I don't necessarily need it. You know, maybe somebody else wants to pick it up. But if the garbage truck is going to come and compost it, then it's time to go get it, I guess, if it's useful. And I thank my garbage people for their service because that's the most important job in society. I hope to encourage all the trash collectors to stop picking up the rich people's trash and just let them drown in it. So, anyways, let's get to your responses. So, uh, who are you thanking for your service? On Facebook, our last response was from uh, Andrew S. This is Hell Producers, especially the one who is going to choose the winner. They're the best. Thanks, Andrew. I'm glad that you think I'm the best because I am choosing, choosing the winner. But do I want to choose a kiss up? I'm not sure. <laughs> You sound a little thirsty for that. This is hell merchandise, but I can't blame you because we got some nice merchandise I haven't even yet got my hands on, so. Alright. So, our next response, the last one on Facebook, is from Mark A. That says, Alex. Sorry this is real and not funny, but I'm thinking Alex. They're thinking Alex for Alex's service. So... Sorry, Mark. Andrew's winning on this one because Alex is no longer, uh, well, you know, he's still around, but he's not producing the show this week or I, I don't really know what Alex is doing. He's trying to stay away. He's trying 
to spend time with his family. Thank you for your service to your family, Alex. All right. <laughs> On to Twitter, I guess. So, uh, we just got this up on Twitter like an hour ago, so um, we only have one response. But I'd like to think, again, this week's question from Hal is, who are you thanking for their service? And I am a fan of this gif that was posted with this picture of Alana from Broad City saluting. Because <laughs> that's a funny show. So anyways, hypocrite reader is the only person that got to our response within an hour. Good job, hypocrite reader. Who are you thanking for your service, for their service? Who is hypocrite reader thinking, thanking for their service? They are always remembering, they say always remember to tip your local pharmacos. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. I think that means like your farm, your, your pharmacist, like, <laughs> tip them as if they're not making enough money off of uh, <laughs> I don't know who knows how insurance works I don't know insurance payouts so anyways I guess now I have to go through all of these because I'm picking the winner so let me just relook. Uh, this person's thinking with bumper stickers because they're a good conservative American uh, this person's thinking they're bartenders this person's thinking the Azov battalion this Pete, uh, from downstairs, I think, is thanking the Visigoths for their service. Not sure who they are. Are they a band? I don't know. <laughs> Fabio AJL is thanking Chuck Surgeon for their service. Yes, thank you for not killing Chuck, as far as I know. He's alive. All right. Chris H is thanking Tim McVeigh for their service. Is that an actor? I don't know. You know, all these men's men's names. I cannot keep them straight. I have to say this next one too. Aaron D is thanking Steve Bannon for their service. I'm like, who is that? Like a Steve Bannon? That's a politician, right? <laughs> I blocked this stuff out. <laughs> Dan K. How, who are they thanking for their service? The guy who asked me if I want fries with that. Yeah, you should thank every service employee for their service. Uh, Justin G just says D's. They're thanking D's for their service. Okay, I don't know who that is. So, you know, honestly, if Hypocrite Reader hadn't answered this message within the last hour, then I would have gone with Andrew S's pandering to me about being the best producer and being the best ever because I'm picking the winner. I'm so sorry, Andrew, you're the runner up, but I'm gonna go ahead and pick hypocrite reader here saying, always remember to tip your local pharmacos. Your local pharmacos. I, maybe I should Google what that is and make sure, but I'm assuming that's a pharmaceutical reference and it reminds me of responses to a question from Hal a couple weeks ago when somebody said that they were tipping their local farmer's market employees. And that's me. So tip me. And if you think about it, if I'm selling people mushrooms, those are nutrient-dense, they have medicinal properties. I'm basically a pharmacist. Or I'm a supplier. I'm a medicine supplier at the very least. Alrighty. Well, thank you for 
hanging in there with me this episode while we're all, you know, waiting. Chuck's healthful recovery and hopefully to hear from him next week. In the meantime, stay well. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>